You're listening to sermon audio from Gospelite Baptist Church. For more resources or to donate to this ministry, please visit gospelite.org. People don't care how much we know until they know how much we care. You know, I've said that before. Maybe you've said it before. Maybe you've heard someone else say it before. And oftentimes when we say things multiple times, they can be called a cliche. Yeah, I've heard that before. But this is much more than a cliche. This goes way beyond just a statement. This is not a Bible verse on the screen, but I do believe it is an interpretation of Scripture. It is truly what Jesus teaches in his word. And so I want to draw your attention to a story. It's found in Mark chapter 2. And I want to read you that story in the Word of God. So however, however you look at the Bible, and if you're with someone next to someone who might need you to say, hey, look here, here's, here's a copy of God's Word. Let's look at this together. I really would like for everybody to follow along somehow on the written Word or the electronic Word, however you choose to look at God's Word on Sunday morning. I love the rustling of pages in the Word of God. It's a great thing. And some of you received a Bible for Christmas gift, and I... That's the best gift you could receive. Verse 1, Mark 2. And when he, Jesus, returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at home. And many were gathered together so that there was no more room. Not even at the door. And he was preaching the word to them. And they came. Bringing to him a paralytic man, a paralyzed man. He was carried by four men. And they could not get near him because of the crowd. So they removed the roof above him. And when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. And when Jesus saw their faith, He said to the paralyzed man, son, son, your sins are forgiven. Now some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts. Why does this man speak like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, Why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise up and uh, take your bed up and, and walk. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic. So I say to you, rise, pick up your bed and go home. And he arose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all so that they were all amazed and they glorified God and they said, we ain't never seen nothing like this. <laughs> That's Arkansas, folks, amen? <laughs> next week, next week, I will have the privilege of visiting the place where this took place. I will be in the tiny little fishing town of Capernaum. 
It's an awesome thought, isn't it? Who's to say that I might not be standing on or near the very place where this house stood, where Jesus healed and saved this man? It's an amazing thought. I want you to imagine with me for just a moment that you're there. I'm going to be there, but I'm not there yet, so I'm kind of with you. This is on the northern edge of the Sea of Galilee, Capernaum. There is a house there. I'm sure one of many. And the Bible says very descriptively, very descriptively, that this house is jam-packed with people. It's full. I mean, there's absolutely not room for one more person. We know that because the crowd gathered and they could not get into the house and this man could not get to Jesus and people were standing at the door. I bet they were standing along side the house, looking in the windows, it may have been, and again, I'm imagining it could have been three or four rows thick of people just trying to listen to Jesus as he preached and as he taught the word of God. That's why the house was full, by the way. The house was full because Jesus was sharing the word and people had come to hear the word. And I want you to know it was a full house and how would have, how, how would have a house maybe in that day been? It would have been square. Let's imagine. We're trying to picture it, right? It would have been square. Secondly, it would have been made of stone. The roof, which is kind of the key element of the story, the roof, right? The roof would have been uh, overlaid with saplings. And then there would have been on top of that uh, palm branches. They would have been held together with mud. That was kind of been, that was the construction methodology of the day. And so you can see the scene, can't you? A large crowd, people gathering all around to hear Jesus' house is incredibly packed out. The excitement is in the air, right? By the way, it might be a good time for me just to put a plug in for exciting church services. Can I tell you today that usually people are not going to be, a, uh, be excited about going to a church that is dead, where there's no excitement where there's no enthusiasm about the, the mission and the, the, the friendliness is not real and it's kind of a frigid, cold atmosphere. Hey, listen, there is a packed out house. Nothing wrong with crowds. In fact, historically, many great crowds have gathered in church history to hear God's word preached. We hear about stories from D.L. Moody, the great evangelist and out of Chicago and who through his ministry shook two continents for Christ and preached to thousands at a time without any aid of media or microphones. We hear of the great prince of preachers, Charles Haddon Spurgeon, who preached to thousands of people there in England. We read of Billy Graham, the great evangelist of modern-day history, possibly since the Apostle Paul, has there not been an evangelist like Billy Graham who preached upwards to a million people at a time? Great crowds, great choirs, great music. We need to have compassion on the multitudes. The number on the screen when it reached 7 billion people represents the population of the world that needs to hear the gospel. And then, of course, our nation of over 300 million, our county of over 100,000, our city of over 40,000. 
We need to be serious about reaching people with the gospel of Jesus Christ. So there was a crowd there, a crowd. Many were outside. They were trying to get in. It was exciting. Suddenly, there was a noise. Now, purposely, I'm getting really quiet right now because I want you to feel the moment. The reason why everybody is looking at me right now, except for the two or three that are nodding off and falling asleep because I'm not as exciting as I need to be. No, I'm just kidding. (laughs) It's because there's nothing really here to distract us. We might hear a little noise from the from the boiler system, sometimes there's a little buzz in the, in the, in the, in the, in the media system. But, but it, virtually it's very quiet. We're not distracted. So can you imagine what it would be like if I got quiet for a moment and then up above this crowd, we heard something happening in the roof. All of a sudden, the attention would be taken off of me, right? And just like in the story, I'm sure Jesus kind of looked up along with One head and then another and then another. And all of a sudden there's this commotion. It's coming from up above on this roof of this house. And wouldn't you know it, all of a sudden a hand comes through. And now things are really getting restless. There's a hand. Well, what is that? And then all of a sudden that hand peels back part of the the saplings and the the palm branches and, and the mud. The debris begins to fall on the crowd. And for one time, people are glad they sat under the balcony. You're not just backsliders. You're smart today, right? I'm joking. And then all of a sudden, our head kind of looks down. Hey, guys. And then another head. How many were in the storm? Four. So four people are looking down into the crowd. And you can imagine everyone by this time is stunned as the debris is kind of being wiped off their faces and falling to the ground and they're wiping off their clothes and these four heads are above. And then a stretcher is lowered through the roof. The measurements were perfect. They had calculated this thing perfectly. They measured exactly what they would need to do. They, they were safe in this. They didn't fall through the roof with them. I mean, all of the precautions were taken. This was a calculated plan to get this man to Christ. Wow. And when Jesus saw this man and the faith that this crew had, he makes this statement. Son, your sins are forgiven. And of course, at that moment, the criticizers began to criticize and Jesus spoke up and said, hey, wait a minute. Man, what's easier? What's easier? To save a man from his sins, to forgive a man's sins or to heal him physically? And of course, ultimately, we learn in the story that the most important thing was not that the man was healed physically, though he was healed physically. The most important thing that happened to this man is that he was saved spiritually. He was born again. And so the title of the very first series of this year, beginning with this passage and this thought and this message is, Who's Your One? And today I want to talk to you about the importance of one. And what does this story have to do with Gospelite Baptist Church in Hot Springs, Arkansas? Because that's really all I care about right now at this moment is you and us and our neighborhoods and our cities and those that walk our streets. Who's your one? I want to give you four observations from the text 
Number one, the first observation is this, that we, because we're talking about what does it mean for us, right? What does it mean for gospelite? We, gospelite, we are to bring all men, all people to Jesus Christ. Who's your one? This one man was important to these four men. And so one person should be a concern to us. You see, Jesus died for all. Second Timothy in chapter two, in or first Timothy chapter two, verse three and four says, This is good. This is good. It's pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. Every person is important to Jesus Christ. And if every person is important to Jesus Christ, then every person should be important to you and me. Every person. This man was paralyzed. He was underprivileged. But he was worth the effort. The great effort of these four men. And so what we need to see is the value of one soul. That number one. Who's your one? One soul. Jesus would have died for this one soul only. If he were the only one that have ever lived, he would have died for this one soul. I'm so glad that there was a time when I was somebody's one. I'm so thankful for that day when, in, in, in humanly speaking, his name was Glenn Riggs, who was used to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ the day that, that I walked an aisle and got saved. I happened to be at that time a Roman Catholic altar boy. But it would not have mattered if I was a Baptist kid or a Methodist kid or a, it didn't matter what denomination I was. I just happened to be Catholic because it's not your denomination that gets you saved anyway. Amen. It's not the association that you have with a certain denomination or convention. It is your relationship with Jesus Christ. And that day I repented of my sins along with another young lady by the name of Courtney. And I bowed at the Lord's Supper table as I came broken and repented of my sin and cried out to Christ as a 13-year-old boy. And my pastor had the privilege of leading me to that place of, of, uh, where I prayed and received Christ as my Savior. I'm so glad that I was somebody's one that day. And they discipled me. You know, the house that the Gethsemane guys live in is the very house that my youth pastor lived in. I slept in that house, guys, more days than you'll sleep in it if you stay the whole six months. I guarantee you, in five years, I probably slept in that house 400 nights because my youth pastor mentored me and discipled me. And I grew in grace and in knowledge, and he chose me in many ways to be that one person he would pour his life into. And so many, many ways, I am here today preaching the gospel because somebody said, Erica Pace is going to be my one. Listen, never call any man worthless for whom Christ died. We need to be looking in 2020 into the unseemly places, the nooks and crannies of our community, the neighborhoods, the, the streets, the, 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 the hospitals, the the retirement centers, the nursing homes, even the back pews of a church or that, those that wander in for that one service, just giving it a try. And all the time, God was 
kind of leaning into you, saying, there's your one. Are you listening? R.A. Torrey said this, great preacher that I used to read after, after a lot of my younger days. R.A. Torrey. He said that no one has the right to call himself a follower of Jesus Christ if he is not a soul winner. It's convicting. No one has the right to call himself a follower of Jesus Christ if he's not burdened for somebody to be saved and to be a follower of Christ. It's the heartbeat of Jesus. It's the heartbeat of our Lord and Master. Charles Haddon Spurgeon said this, and I quote, I would sooner bring one sinner to Jesus Christ than to unpick all the mysteries of his divine word. Wow. It seems as if we've got it backwards today because we're all about unpicking the mysteries and yet we're leaving behind those who need Christ and need the message, the simple message of the gospel. And so that's why I think there is a return here this year at Gospel Light and maybe even in this little convention we're a part of to preaching and teaching the gospel on a one-on-one level and emphasizing it more than we have in the past. Who's your one? Who's your one? You know, I believe there must have been four categories of people in this story. In fact, I think if you look at the story closely, you'll agree there's four different types of people. The first one is obvious. The first one we're going to call the helpless. Who was the helpless one in this story? It was the paralytic man. It was the paralyzed man. He was completely helpless. And by the way, There are people today in our community paralyzed like this man, paralyzed by sin. They're paralyzed by their ignorance. And he could not have come unless somebody cared enough to bring him. And so you and I are commissioned by God to go into all the world to preach the gospel as Jesus was preaching the gospel. To bring them to Christ because the Bible says in Romans 3.11, there's none that seeketh after God. No, not one. And so are you and I busy about the Father's business this morning as we're being challenged over the next few weeks to understand, first of all, that we are to bring all men to Jesus. He died for the whole world. He wants everyone to be saved. And you and I can have a part in that. And then secondly, the second category of people are the hinderers. You can see them in this story. It doesn't tell us who they were, but I'm going to guess they were the people standing around the door. The people that were actually hindering this man from getting inside. You know, today we might call them church members. Just church members that sit, soak, and sour, you know? They come to church and it's all about them. In fact, it's not just about them, it's about... I'm not insinuating this is happening in our church. I just have been in churches where I've seen seasoned Christians get... Offended because somebody was sitting in their spot. Can you believe it? And I've never seen them before. So strange. And I don't think I'll ever sit there again because they didn't look very good. And they looked like they were kind of dirty and didn't dress very nice. And so I'm going to find me another place to sit. The hinderers. In the story, they were actually listening to Jesus preach. In the story, they were actually in the house making it hard for anybody else to get in. 
Every time I hear these horror stories of things that have happened inside churches, fights and arguments and business meetings and all these different things that would turn people off to the gospel, I'm thinking, that must have been the hinderers. And remember, they were listening. They were spectators. But one thing they were not is aware of the need. They weren't aware of the need. And is it possible that church members could be hinderers? Is it possible that you and I could hinder someone? The third person in the story I see here would be what I'm going to call the hellish crowd. Now, that's a tough word, isn't it? And I hesitate to use it, but I think it only fits because these were the people, believe it or not, who actually got upset because this vile sinner was even there. Can you believe it? What is he doing in church? They were critical. You know, I've been a pastor long enough to actually believe that some church members think that being critical is a spiritual gift. You know, it's just something God's helped, you know, taught me through the years and how to be appropriately critical of people. The Moody. I read a story years ago where he was preaching and after his service, he was shaking hands like I do out in the foyer. And one of the people that were in the church came by, one of the church members, and shook his hand and said, Mr. Moody, I'll have you know you made 38 grammatical errors in your message. Oh, I've pastored here 27 years. I've had a few of those looks on the way out. You know, it wasn't, it was the one thing, you know. And by the way, I've made a lot of grammatical errors. I've gotten corrected so many times through the years, most of the time, in jest and fun, and I like it, and it's good. Just don't be too serious with me. I already know I'm not the best preacher. And Mr. Moody knew that too. He had no formal education. None. He looked at the man and he said, first of all, sir, sir, I, I'm sure it was a lot more than 38. He said, secondly, I want you to know that I, I struggle. I don't have a formal education, and so I do struggle sometimes with articulating things correctly. And, but I do know this. I'm doing the best with what I've got. And I've been faithful to preach God's word for many years, just like I did this morning. And so, sir, I have a question for you. What are you doing for Jesus? You know, I think sometimes if we would stop and think before we criticize, we might identify the beam that's in our eye and back off and say, you know what? I think instead of being critical, I'll look for what was right instead of what was wrong. I'll look for what blessed me instead of what I didn't like. And maybe we would realize that, you know, we're not all that great either. And to be honest with you, Critical spirit in church destroys a church. And it was destroying the atmosphere in that house. These were critical people. They were hellish because of their attitudes. And then there's a fourth category of person. And we're going to call this one the one that all of us should desire to be. The helpers. Yes, there were the hinderers. Yes, there were the hellish and yes, there was the helpless, but there was also the helpers. And this is what I want to be. The four who went out and found a way to get their one to Jesus on a stretcher. You know, I have an idea that 
God put this four together because they each had maybe a, a strength, an attribute. You know, that's how God seems to work, even at our church. I, I look at the personalities in our church and in our deacons and our elders and our members and our small groups. And I see that, you know, it's interesting how God can bring such variety and diversity to church. And yet that's what makes it beautiful, right? So I look at these four men and I see in them attributes that they must have had to get this accomplished. The first one is this, compassion. And so if I could just call the first dude, Mr. Compassion. This was the guy that would cry very easily. He walked by this guy probably many times, but finally he happened to focus. Tear got in his eye. He goes back to the house, looks at his buds. Maybe they were dorming together, who knows? And he says, guys, man, there's this guy over here. He's paralyzed. He's, it's just awful. I see him every day, but, but there was something this time that was different. And I just, man, I just, I don't think I can walk by him again without, without doing something. about. It. I just don't know what to do. We need people with compassion. We need folks that, that have that moist spot in their eye and they care for people. And listen, I think he would have been the one that might have initiated it. And sometimes I think we need to open our mouths and, and make the need known. Share your heart. Oftentimes, great things are accomplished beginning with someone who had compassion. And then I think there was a second man and his attribute must have been courage. Or rather, I'm sorry, um, confidence. Confidence. I say confidence second because I think after you have compassion, you have to have somebody who believes it can be done. I love this kind of a guy. He's the guy that, you know, even though somebody at the table is going to say, oh, I just don't know how we could do it. I mean, the dude's paralyzed. I mean, how are we going to help him? I mean, we don't even have a handicap bus. And he says, we can do it. We'll figure it out. It'll all work out. He doesn't have a plan. He's not really sure we're going to pay for it. He just knows this. God can do anything. Amen. You know, Mr. Compassion's over there crying. Oh, God can do anything. That's my real. We need people that believe it can be done. We don't need any more naysayers. There's enough of those. We need folks to say, you know what? By faith, I believe it can be done. In fact, I love the fact that Jesus was so clear when he said this. When he saw their faith. I love the fact that it, it said he saw their faith because I think that reminds us of James chapter 4 where scripture says, show me your faith without your works and I'll show you my faith by my works because faith without works is dead. You see, faith is something you can see. I'm saying this, that this man had confidence. He believed God could do it. And then thirdly, there was, I got ahead of myself a moment ago, there was Mr. Courage. You know, you got to admit, church, this was a pretty courageous thing they did. I mean, come on. They went on a rooftop. This was scary. I'm, I'm afraid of heights. I'm going to tell you right now, I, the other day, my son and I, Zoe, we had to change a light bulb and it was, it was, it was 15, 16, 17 feet high on uh, the roof was. And Zoe looks at me and says, dad, man, I'm, I'm like 19, you're 54. I think you need to do it because if you fall and die, you've already lived most of your life. <laughs> dad, I'm young. It kind of made sense to me. So I'm like, yeah, you're right. You know. <laughs> 
So here I, I start going up the stair, you know, so, I'm like, so at least kind of brace the, you know, he braces the, the, the uh, ladder for me, yeah, and he's holding the big, long, you know, light bulb, and he hands him up these fluorescent lights, and I'm, I'm like, you know, <laughs> shaking and scared half to death, and I'm holding on to the, you know, fluorescent light, and I'm sticking it in, and my arms were about to fall, it was scary, man, but I tell you what, after I got out, I was like, I'm the man, <laughs> so you're a wimp, dude. Yeah, I got the job done. 54, still got it, you know. Courage. It takes courage sometimes to step out. It's fanatical. It's freakish. Some would even call it foolish. But you know, I don't know that you can really be a Christian on fire for God if at least some point in your life you have not been called a freak, a fool, or a fanatic. At least once. Think about it. These men came up with this really crazy idea. I don't know why we're so, we're so afraid to carry our Bibles with us to work. What will people think? Well, they might think you're a Christian. Maybe. Or maybe to pray at a public restaurant. Well, let's just be real quiet. We don't want anybody to see us. I tell you what, let's keep our eyes open. They'll think we're talking. Man, thank God for people who are not ashamed just to, to do something that, that is different, that, that, that could, could, might be noticed and deemed as fanatical, but it's the right thing to do. And your one may need to see that. And then there was Mr. Creativity. I mean, you've got to admit, this was a pretty slick idea. I mean, this was the guy that was smart. You know, he was the guy that said, okay, guys, here's what I think we're going to do. We've got to get the dimensions of the roof. We've got to know exactly how big it is. We've got to know how strong it is. We got to, let's find out who contracted the roofs. Let's talk to him a little bit to find out what it's going to take to fix the roof. Cause if we tear it up, we got to fix it. And I mean, this guy was creative. He would have been the multimedia guy. He would have been the, the guy that wrote the plans out. He would have been the guy that the colored guy that would have figured everything out in the church to make sure it's done right. Creativity. Every church needs someone who's creative. And you know what? Love will find a way. Nothing's more creative than finding a way to love somebody. Which one are you? Are you Mr. Compassion or maybe Mr. Confidence or Miss Courage or Mr. Creativity? So number one, we're to bring all men to Jesus. Number two, we are to bring all men by all means to Jesus. I want to say a shocking statement, but if it's not illegal or immoral, let's try it. (laughs) I mean, I'm exaggerating to make a point because someone has said the last seven words of a church are this. We never did it that way before. I've heard those words. And I determined I did not want that to be the last word said in our church. Someone has said, come we or come woe. We just like status quo. You know, I've never been a status quo guy. Never have. Never have understood why somebody would want it just the same old, same old. I mean, to me, the whole time, music was developing and getting better and, and people were adding instruments. I, the whole time I was thinking, why don't we do that? Oh, I don't split the church. You can't do that, Pastor. The only instrument we can have is just a piano. We can't add instruments. I'm like, that's so cool. More people would come. Younger people would come. And the next generation is listening. Let's do that. It's exciting. And I remember all of my pastor friends thinking, man, you're crazy. You're going to get 
pushed out. It's not going to go over. And they were right. <laughs> At least for a little while. Until we got rid of the hinderers and the hellish and, <laughs> and finally got some helpers that said, you know what? I may not like it. It may not be the way I would do it. But I tell you what, if it's helping people, I'm for it. It's not wrong. It's not sinful. Let's do whatever we can do to get people to Jesus. People don't like change. But I love what Adrian Rogers said. Methods are many and principles are few. Methods may change, but principles never do. And so the method of music may change and may, may vary. But don't get the idea there's just one kind of idea that God can bless. Don't get the idea there's one kind of music, only one kind. Don't get the idea there's just one kind of hymn book. Don't get the idea there's just one kind of program. Only one. Listen, everything we do is just a stretcher to bring people to Jesus. It's a means. It's just a means, a different means. It's different. It may not be something you're, you, you, you would be willing to help us with, but, but we would just ask that you would say, and I would say at times, you know what? Man, I'm just grateful that people are coming to Christ. Amen. Because we're to bring all men, by all means, to Jesus. Third thought is this. We are all to bring all men, by all means, to Jesus. You say, wait a minute, did you add anything to that story? Yeah, you. I added you. Because no one is excluded. I think sometimes we think, well, hey, pastor's preaching this because the elders need it, the deacons need it, and the small group leaders need it. Let's, let's just make sure that, uh, you know, but I'm just a wee little church member, and I slip in here, and I slip out, and that's just, you know, for them and not for me. No, no, this is for all of us. Amen. No one's excluded. No one. All of us. We've got to do this together, church. Over the next couple of weeks, as Pastor Horton preaches to us about these things, and I'm not going to give any of, I know some of the details. It's going to be exciting. But as you listen, I pray that you will say, you know what? I want to be a part of that. I'm looking forward to where I'm going to fit into that and how I, as this develops, where I can jump on and get involved and be a part. Even if you're already a Christian, there's discipleship that's needed. And there's so much that we can be a part of when it comes to this idea of we need to do it together. Every small group, every staff member, every elder, every deacon, every church member, every man, every woman, every boy, every girl. All of us need to be praying right now. Who's going to be my one? God, show me. Number four, we are all to bring all men by all means, at all cost, to Jesus. You see, there's no cheap way. There's no easy way. There's no lazy way to bring one person to Jesus. This is not. It's quite expensive. But we can spare no expense if we're going to reach people with the gospel of Jesus Christ. We can spare no expense. And that's why it's so important for you and I to understand in this story that Jesus was essentially saying that people are more important than property. That's what Jesus was saying. 
Listen, I understand things are going to get torn up a little bit and, and, and you're going to have to fix things every now and then and things go out and things get broken, and, but that's okay. Just make sure you got a plan to fix them because we got to keep getting people to Jesus. We, we may need to tear that roof up again. You can spare no expense. It's costly. Anybody who's been in ministry before knows that the number one struggle is always expenses. It's always finances. I don't believe these men tore into that roof without having a plan to pay for it. I think somebody stepped up and said, that's a good idea, Mr. Creativity. Tear the roof up. I'll tell you what, how much is it going to cost? Well, it's going to cost this much. I'll write the check. I got it. We'll get that done. Let's get it done. Or let's raise it. Or let's give it. Or let's budget it. Or let, but let's, let's get it done. Let's spare no expense. For just a moment on this last Sunday of the year. Because next month, at the end of the month, is, is a new budget we present to the church. The elders are pouring over it. Our staff is pouring over it. We're obviously looking for ways that we can cut and be more frugal because, you know, we've got a small deficit going into the year. Although we have a large increase in giving because of the capital campaign. But I want to be pastoral on this last Sunday of the year for just a moment. I want to do it kindly and lovingly, but I want to do it because I feel like it's important that we understand that when we say there's no cheap way, that that includes all of us participating if we're going to truly get it done. You know, we were going through trying to get new leadership for the church this coming year and and a long list of names were given by our elders. And I just said, look, pick, pick names out that you want to recommend for leadership in our church. And they did. And I just gave that list to our business manager. And when he got it, he went through. Because I said, look, just first thing you want to do is make sure you know, where your treasure is, there where your heart is. Let's see who's giving. And of that list of men, there were nearly eight men who have great jobs that have given zero to the church. And I got discouraged because obviously I had to take them off a leadership list where they would have been great to serve but if you're not giving if you're not investing those aren't harsh words those are words to wake us up those are words for us to understand that church if we're not willing to give then there's not much we could do because it takes expenses let me give you an illustration I tithe. I love, I just believe in the tithe. That's just, I think the majority of our church does. Not everybody does. But we do. We, we tithe 10% off our, our net income. And we give off the top, the very top of our, of our, of our giving. Is that, is that net? No, gross. I'm sorry. Gross. That's right. Gross. Sorry. Our gross. Before, before taxes. So we give our 10%. And then we give our missions. I still give a little of us. And then we give some to the capital program. I mean, we've got our, our, but our percentage starts with 10. And then we go from there. And obviously, if we go from there, it's going to be more than 10. But we start with 10. It's a great place to start. And then we grow from there. That's how we've done it for 27 years as a couple. Some that would say, well, I don't believe in the tithe. I just believe in grace giving or New Testament giving or I just don't think the tithe is required anymore. The principle then that you live by is a great principle. And I respect it greatly. Because you've heard that it's been said of old that you should not murder. But I say unto you that if a man even has hate in his heart, he's a murderer already. 
So I have great respect for someone who believes the tithe is just the Old Testament, though I don't. I believe it is. It's, it's, it's still a principle taught in God's Word. But I, I think there's enough gray area there for me to accept someone who says, I don't believe in tithing 10%. And the next statement would be, so we give more than 10%. Amen. I think it's great. But to give 9, 8, 7, 6, 4%, 3%, 2%, 1% or nothing is to hinder the work of God. So I want to challenge on the last Sunday of the year. There's no easy way to challenge this. Most preachers are scared half to death to talk about this because people get offended when you talk about money. And yet Jesus talked about it more than he did heaven or hell put together. So I figure I'm in good company if I'm speaking the words of Jesus. But I would challenge all of us, when you get your year-end statement, which it's coming in about two weeks, you'll get it in the mail. It's for your taxes. It's for you to have. It's for you to motivate yourself. It's for you to see, hey, this is what I invested in God's work. Here's what I invested in my house, my car, my vacations, my kids, my Christmas. And then look at the number you invested in God's work. Because that's important. That's part of your budget. That's part of your life. That's part of your where your heart is, right? We had a good Christmas. We did. We're blessed. But I'm asking everyone to take the time when you get your year-end statement to look at it. Because as the budget is presented at the end of April, or rather January, we'll need everyone to know what it's going to take to be a part of that. And so with that said... I want to challenge everyone beginning this morning to say, God, who is it you're going to lay on my heart? Is it, is it my neighbor? Is it, is it my employer, my employee? Is it, is it someone that I see at Walmart every week or someone on the side of the road that I drive by every single morning to work? Who is my one? And as God begins to put that on your heart, I want you to then listen to Jeremy preach for the next two weeks. And I want you to be open as you come into church while we're in Israel and let God begin to to really show you who it is. And then when I come back and I'm able to finish this series off, may we be able to say, you know what? It doesn't care how much we know until people know how much I care. And so I've got somebody I'm caring for, I'm investing in, I'm developing a relationship with. And let's pray that we'll be people of compassion and people of courage and people of confidence and people of creativity. New ideas for discipleship. Be open, be sensitive. And then pray for the leadership of this church that we would lead by example. And as we go at the end of April to the Econ Conference, it's an evangelism conference that the Southern Baptist Church has every year. And they bring in these really great speakers. And they motivate us to come back and motivate you to bring one person to Jesus. So I'm going to ask you to pray. And this morning as we sing this invitation and respond, would you begin to look beyond 2019 and look to 2020? And if 2019 has been a good year, may 2020 be a greater year. And if 2019 has been a tough year, may 2020 be a better year. May we look beyond the horizon of our 2019 year and to a new year and a new theme and a new emphasis and getting back to really what is the basics, bringing people to Jesus. Isn't that awesome? Who's your one? Who's your one? Answer that question in the next month.
Father, 